The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So ladies, just a quick note. At the beginning of May, we ordered about 25 books that I hope to give away this morning. And they're stuck on an Amazon truck somewhere, so hopefully we'll have those to hand out over the next few weeks. Today, though, we'll continue in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, we saw in verses 3 through 14, one sentence about the amazing grace of God in Christ. Then we learned about how the Holy Spirit helps us to apprehend that grace. Chapter 2, 1 through 10 was what we are apart from the grace of God, but now what we are by the grace of God. But now today's passage, 2, 11 through 22 is about God's unifying grace. It tells us how we can have peace with God and peace with one another, a message we always need. So this morning, if you are using the Pew Bible, please turn to page 1160. 1160, you'll see the whole paragraph on the left side of that page. The title is God's Unifying Grace, and we'll walk through the peace that only comes from the Lord. Sort of three R's this morning. First, we're going to remember, then we're going to recognize, then we're going to rejoice. Okay, so the first R taken from the passage is remember. And here's what God wants us to remember. He wants all of us to remember what it was like when we had no hope. All right, so look in God's word in verse 11. Therefore, remember you at one time, Gentiles in the flesh. Call the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We're to pause and remember what it was like when there was no hope. First, this reminds us of a time that we were rejected by others and far from God himself. Perhaps you're even here this morning. That's where you feel like you are. This passage, I think, will greatly encourage you. But first, feel what it's like to feel rejected. Verse 11, these Gentiles are called the uncircumcision. Our translation has it in quotes to let you know that it was a derogatory put-down. It was a way to make fun of those who were thought of as inferior. Inferior in what way? Inferior because the Jews thought that the reason God loved them was because of the external rituals that they did. Notice in the passage it says that the circumcision made fun of the uncircumcision, but notice that they made fun of them without real reason. They just made fun of them because they thought they didn't have the ritual hope. We use the word Gentile, we don't think much about it, but it had a very heavy connotation in many Jewish ways of talking about it, as in heathen, as in pagans, as in the logs made by God just to stoke the fires of hell. So here from the Jewish perspective are these people that are worthless, but notice the wrong hope that many Jews put their hope in. Look again in verse 11. Paul gets one of his snarky side jabs in, and I love whenever he does this. So verse 11, they are circumcision, but notice only made in flesh by hands. So they put their hope in their external religious distinctions. It's not that that was a wrong thing to do. It's that it's a wrong place to put your hope. 
And brothers and sisters, for thousands of years, people have put their hope in external distinctions that are rituals rather than in trust in God and in his promise. I'll give you a couple examples of that. If you're familiar with Hotel Rwanda, you know that in Rwanda, warring tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsi, macheted each other to death based on an external distinction that came down to a matter of a difference of height. Still today, there are religions around the world that literally go to war with other sects within the religion because they argue that the beard is not the right length or the woman's head covering is not sufficient. But circumcision was never intended to do that. The hope was always intended to remain in God's promise, originally given to Abraham long before the law of Moses. It was never meant to be a ground of hope. In fact, we'll see in verse 16 that it's not just the Gentiles who need to be reconciled to God, but it's many Israelites because they've wrongly put their hope in the external rituals rather than in the promise that was to come. So Paul's making a comment here about how far off the Gentiles were, but also how misguided the Israelites were. Perhaps you can remember either one of those. When I was far from truth or when I was misguided about truth. Romans 9, Paul says about the Israelites, what shall I say? To them belong adoption, glory, covenants, worship, promises, patriarchs, race. And yet verse 2 of chapter 10 I bear witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, because they have sought to establish a righteousness that is their own, rather than looking to the righteousness from God through Christ. And that's why the verse says, having no hope at the end of verse 12. I want you to notice then that apart from Christ, there is no hope and there is no God. Perhaps this morning for you, or perhaps you can remember. Do you remember, I remember, a feeling of hopelessness? What what am I going to do? What is the eternal future going to be? Why should I wake up and live another day? A time of no hope. But brother and sister, we're not to remain in hopelessness. I have good news for you. The next two words, look in verse 13. But now... Praise God that hopelessness need not be the eternal state of anyone because now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's something subtle that happened in the text. I wonder if you caught it. In verse 11 and 12, notice in verse 12, he's just called the Christ. That's because the Jewish Messiah, the Hebrew word Meshua, we get the English word Christos, the Jewish Messiah was just believed to be the Christ, a Christ. But now in verse 13, we realize who the Christ is. The Christ is Jesus. Jesus is the Christ that was promised. That's why now there's hope. The Christ that the Israelites largely overlooked is the Son of God, born, named Jesus, come to take away our sin through him and him alone. Can we be brought near? Notice this text tells us that we're brought near by something specific. Verse 13, we are brought near by the blood of Christ. I wonder if you know this morning that there is no other way to be brought to God. 1 Peter 3.18 says the just Jesus suffered for the unjust us that he might bring us to God. This text says something similar. Verse 14, he himself is our peace. 
So I'd like to consider two questions and do my best to answer them. Here's the argument I'm trying to make this morning from this passage. I want to argue from this passage, the only way to have real peace is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And I'd like to try to show it to you from the Bible. Where do we each need peace? First, we each need peace with God. All right, look in in the Bible, look in verse 14. He himself is our peace who has made us both one, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God. Do you know that we have a problem fundamentally in our hearts that causes us to push God away. Catch what I'm saying. Not God to push us away. No, no. Us to push God away. James chapter 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Romans 8 verse 7 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. We are born with a hostility in our heart against God. And we built the wall in Michigan You only have a nice day in May every four years, so I love living down here. (laughs) So we had one of those nice days ten years ago. I remember it so well. It was May. They're like trees were finally blooming, and I was so excited. And we took a walk in our neighborhood, and we saw a garage sale. And I looked for what I always look for at a garage sale, which is books. And I said, how much are these books? And they said, whatever you can fit into this plastic bag is a dollar. They they told the wrong guy that. (laughs) I got so many books in that bag that I still feel a little guilty about how much I got for a dollar. But among that, those books, I love a summer day to just lay on the hammock and relax to John Grisham. It is and probably my favorite John Grisham book is The Testament. If you know much about John Grisham, he does not write Christian novels, but I think he's a Christian who does write novels. And in his book, The Testament, he comes closest that I've ever read of him kind of putting the gospel into the book. In the book, there's a character that he's made up, and the character's name is Nate O'Reilly. Nate has been through two divorces. He has a substance abuse problem. He's an alcohol problem, and he has given up on any sort of sense that there's hope to live for. But then, because of a calamity in his law firm, he's fired, and he ends up going to Brazil, and he sees a woman there who's a Christian who's living selflessly in a way that he can't make sense of. After watching her love for him and her care for people in this downtrodden, poor community, he has a serious crisis of what God is like. And it becomes clear to him for the first time that God is there reaching down to him. But Nate, his whole life, has been hostile to God. And so he walks into an empty church building by himself. And here is what John Grisham writes. With both hands, Nate clenched the back of the pew in front of him, and he repeated his list, mumbling every weakness and flaw and affliction and evil that plagued him. He confessed them all. And in one glorious acknowledgement of failure, Nate laid himself bare before God, holding nothing back. He unloaded enough burdens to crush three men, but when he finally finished, Nate had tears in his eyes, and he whispered, God, I'm sorry, please help me. And he felt the baggage leave his soul with one gentle brush of his hand. His slate had been wiped clean. Friend, if you're here this morning and you have a burden, I want you to know really, really good news. God can take it away. Jesus came to give peace. 
Do you know something? God is really good at knocking walls down. You remember Joshua? Did God need Joshua's help to get Jericho's walls down? I mean, they walked around like buffoons. <laughs> Just to remind them, God can bring the walls down. But here's the part we all love the best. When the walls come down, God spares whoever asks for his help. See, there's one part of the wall that didn't collapse. It was Rahab, because all Rahab said was something from this passage today. Remember me. I remember the God who brought these people out of Egypt. Will he remember me when he brings the walls of hostility down? Friend, if you're here this morning and you've yet had your burdens lifted, I have good news for you. Today you can experience peace with God. Let God take the walls down. Just say, God, help me. He will. See, when we have peace with God, then and only then can we have peace with others. Peace in our home. Peace in our relationships. Peace in our church. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, Josh, that all sounds nice. That all sounds like church talk. But honestly, Josh, if you want my real feelings, I think that Christianity doesn't bring peace. I actually think the reason we have problems in the world is because of Christianity. I think Christianity is the reason there's conflict. Many people think that. Let me take a minute on it. Whatever generation you're from, you probably know the lyrics to John Lennon's song, Imagine. Don't sing along when I, <laughs> when I read them. <laughs> Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine no countries, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. No religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. John Lennon put in melody what a lot of people think in the depths of their hearts. There's no peace with Christianity. It's because of Christianity that we have conflict. The four horsemen of atheism, Dawkins and Hitchens especially, have argued that at the academic level. Essentially what they've said is this. If we want peace, we need to end religion. On the other side of the aisle are people who think, well, Okay, I'm not sure that Christianity brings peace, but maybe if we could just kind of mix Christianity with everything else, then we could have peace. Uh, if you were in middle school in the 1980s, you probably had a textbook called Across the Centuries. It was one of the most widely used historical books in our public school system, and here's a quote from it. The God that Muhammad believes in, Allah, is the same God as all the other monotheistic religions of our world, including Judaism and Christianity. So if Lenin argued, hey, let's just end religion, when our public schools taught us, no, let's just blend religion. And if we slap a coexist sticker over it, then we'll have peace. But think about that for a second. If we're going to end religion, then that means we end faith in anything outside ourselves, and we then put our trust in our own strength and superiority. Do you think that will bring peace? If we blend religion, then in Western imperialistic superiority, we argue that people all over the world who've given their lives to the distinct things they argue for are just not as intelligent and educated as we are. And so on our superior perch, we tell them that they just don't know enough. Do you think that would bring peace? So think for a second. Can human pride bring peace? The answer is no, only the cross can bring peace because only the cross says all of us need a savior. 
See, the cross says there's only peace that comes at a foot of humility when we look to the Prince of Peace bearing our crowns. I definitely have compassion on our workplaces. Many of you live in a workplace where you are told that they're going to bring peace into your workplace through training about inclusion. And I have great compassion on this. I appreciate the longing. Let's all get along with one another. But what I've noticed about such training is such training actually leads to tribalism because it causes us to point the finger at each other and say, you need to accept me because you're not accepting me the way I think you ought to. But you know what the cross does? Instead of us pointing at each other, we point at ourselves and say, I am so bad, only God can save me. You see, the cross brings out what nothing else can. The cross alone brings peace. Let me show you from the Bible. Look in verse 13. I'm going to show you three phrases that clearly are about the cross. Verse 13. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near, notice, by the blood of Christ. Now verse 14, he himself is our peace. How did he give us peace? He was broken down in his flesh. God became flesh so that he could die on the cross. Now verse 16, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. John Stott said it well when he wrote, before we can begin to see the cross as done as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. And when we see the cross as something done by us, it gives us equal footing to humbly realize our need. That's why Billy Graham wrote, once you've been to the cross, you will never be the same. See, if you haven't had peace with other people, perhaps it's because you haven't been humbled by the cross. The cross shows me that I am so sinful that only Christ can save me, but he will. And that means that I can share Christ with others as I'm humbled by his grace in my own life. I want to show you three things Jesus did at the cross in our place, okay? Three things he did at the cross in our place. Number one, He abolished the law condemning us. Look in verse 15. He abolished the law condemning us. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. See, the law revealed our sinfulness. And only Jesus could fulfill it because only he is innocent. And so at the cross, Jesus has taken away our guilt and shame. We tend to be at odds with other people and we tend to have hostility with God because it exposes us as not being perfect. But see, Jesus took that away from us. He bore our imperfections. That's why we can have peace. We don't need to have a sense of superiority through abusing the law when we can have the humility that comes at the ground of the cross. I want to show you the second thing Jesus did at the cross. It's the end of verse 15. He made two people one that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. No longer two, now one. At the cross where God and man meet in the person of Jesus, so sinners and our Savior meet eternally. We are united in our need for Christ and in the grace of Christ. And now verse 16, and the third thing he did is he reconciled us. Reconciled means we put our weapons down and we embrace one another. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God 
in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Our distinctions, though real, are far less important than our unity in Christ. Galatians 3.28 says something interesting. It's very similar to today's passage, which is why I'm quoting it. The Bible says there is neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female nor slave nor free. We are all one in Christ. Does that mean we're no longer males or females? No, it means that our distinctions are not nearly as important as our unity in the Lord. What we have in Christ is far more important than anything different about us. We read together today, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. There's one God, one Spirit, one Lord, one baptism. That means that at the cross, a supernatural unity occurs that trumps natural affinity. In our world, every time people talk about peace, the only people that get in the circle are those who are like the people who created the circle. But the cross creates a circle that brings in anybody. So let me ask you a question, Christian, a serious self-examination question. Who are you close friends with that you otherwise have no natural affinity with? You're close with them only because of the cross. You don't have the same age. You don't have the same likes. You're not both engineers. (laughs) But you have the same Lord. That's enough. See, the cross kills hostility. The cross kills the surface hostility. The cross kills racism, tribalism, socioeconomic, and cultural hostility. But the cross gets underneath the surface and kills what nothing else even tries to kill. The cross kills pride. Pride that splits people into categories. Successful, not successful. Educated, undereducated. Spiritual, religious. Right side, wrong side. No, the cross says, no, no, it's not about your side or my side. It's that we're all dead in our sins and need the Lord. Everyone is welcome at the cross. And therefore, everyone can be unburdened at the cross. So let me ask you, when you think of who you are, what's your core sense of who you are? Do you first think, here's what I do. Here's where I'm from. Here's what I look like. Here are my best friends. If that is honestly your core sense of identity, then there will be people you just cannot get along with. But if your core sense of identity is this, I belong to Jesus, then it opens your heart for peace with anyone. See, Christian, the wall of hostility that we have is in our heart. And when God takes the wall of hostility down, then no longer are we making arguments to be one. We just long for the hostility to come down. Earlier I quoted some of the four horsemen of atheism and they've made a very fair point that there are wars that happen in our world because of religious goals behind them. That certainly has happened in Northern Ireland, in the Sudan, in the Crusades, in radical Islam. And sometimes people try to counter that argument by pointing to secular wars like Stalin or Lenin or Mao or Pol Pot, or Hitler. And those are fair points. But I hate when that argument even happens because then it becomes an argument of who has people on their side. And it would be much better if we would just admit we have hostility in our own heart. And that is why we have disagreement. I want to share with you an incredible testimony that I heard this week. And I will email it to you if you can't find it online on your own. But Dr. Molly Worthen 
is the history professor at the University of North Carolina here in Chapel Hill. And she shared her testimony this week, and it was amazing. Molly grew up like me in the Midwest. She grew up in Illinois. She grew up in a very secular home. She was read by her parents, Norse mythology, Roman mythology, Greek mythology, and that's the kind of home it was. Once or twice, they read the Bible at home just to kind of round out her education. And she remembers as an eight or nine-year-old hearing the story of David and Goliath and being angry. All the mythology didn't make her angry, but something about when the Bible was opened exposed an existing authority that she had to contend with. She had a sense of the hostility in her heart. Um, She continued her secularism, went on for years. She ended up um, in her undergrad deciding that she was going to focus on American religion, and that's what she got her Ph.D. in and teaches at the University of North Carolina, and that's what she's written on. So she spent time living and trying to imbibe in a Russian Orthodox community, and that was pretty unsuccessful for her. Then she spent time trying to go to Roman Catholic churches or Anglican churches, but then she came across C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. And as she read it, she found in the Space Trilogy a a realism about satanic forces and sin that she had never encountered. And then she was reading that in the background, and then she had an assignment to write about all those crazy Southern Baptists. I know, right? (laughs) So because of her assignment, she was supposed to write on Southern Baptists and, you know, what's wrong with them and all the weird evangelical people. And so she was assigned the most recent president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Pastor J.D. Greer. So she started visiting the Summit Church. She couldn't get in touch with J.D. because he's a very, very busy guy. And after several weeks, she finally did. When she got in touch with him, she revealed that she's not a spiritual person, but if she ever was going to be a Christian, maybe she'd consider like a workspace sort of thing. And and J.D., to his credit, kind of lifted an eyebrow and said, you know, I'd like to talk to you more about that. Over several months, J.D. and actually Tim Keller over Zoom shared the gospel with her, shared books about the resurrection with her, answered many questions with her patiently, carefully, lovingly. And then here are the words that I'll quote that she came up with. After reading these things, reading the Bible, thinking through these things, she said, well, if I'm a consistent pragmatist, I have to admit I've gotten over the line of whether or not the resurrection is real. I now see the historical evidence, the truth of the resurrection, and that means I must change my working hypothesis of the universe. And so here I was on this weekend, and I switched how I had ever previously prayed. And I prayed not just that God would show himself to me, but I prayed, Jesus, I will let you be my Lord and Savior. She realized the hostility in her own heart. She realized that the hostility she expected from Christians wasn't there. They were instead welcoming. And then the next week, she said this to her husband. She said, I'm feeling pretty stressed out. I think I might be a Christian. (laughs) Her husband said, "Why, why are you stressed out? It's not like you have to wear a sign. What's the big deal? She said, you don't know these missional Baptist types. (laughs) So she prayed publicly in J.D.R.'s office, and in August, she was baptized at the Summit Church. I love this testimony because it reminds us of two things that she observed from this passage. First, that she realized, I have a hostility in my heart. That's why I'm rejecting the truth. But the second thing she saw was that the people at that church that she thought she was going to write about who were so hostile to people on the wrong side of the issues, she found that they were welcoming and loving, and they said, I need the cross just like you need the cross. So Emmanuel, let us examine our health today. 
in our church, do we make walls of hostility about people who we think, well, they don't live the right way? Or do we break down walls of hostility through the humility that Christ saved me? Surely he can save you. I want you to see that Jesus offers peace to all. Look in verse 17. Jesus came near and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Notice the love of our Lord to preach peace to anyone. To not build hostile walls, but to instead break them down with grace and love pursuing anyone. Was it not at the cross that Jesus prayed for his persecutors, Father, forgive them? Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Some of you this morning might realize, Josh, when it says far off, it's talking about me. I'm far off, but if God can save me, I'll come to him. But others of you I'm concerned for because I've been in church for years myself and I know that there are people in church that just come to church but they don't know the Lord. Look in verse 17. It's not just those who are far off but also those who are near. Listen to me this morning. Near is not the same as in. Near is not the same as in. Benjamin Keach was perhaps the most famous Baptist in the 1600s. He preached in London and wrote very educated books. His son Elias was basically a bum, (laughs) but he decided to use his father's reputation for his own advantage. And so his son Elias came to America in 1686 and wore black clothes and pretended to be a minister, though he wasn't even a Christian. He thought he'd make a living from it based on his father's name. And then here's what happened. In 1686, Elias was preaching in a church and here's what the people wrote of his sermon. Elias performed well enough until he'd advanced pretty far in the sermon, and then stopping short, he looked like a man astonished. The audience concluded that he had a seizure or a disorder, but on asking what the matter was, Elias stood up and confessed he was an imposture, and with tears in his eyes and much trembling. And then the chronicler writes this, Great was Elias' distress, though it ended happily, For from this time dated he his conversion. Saved in your own sermon? Sometimes it needs to happen. Don't come here every week and think that you know the Lord unless you've called on him yourself. Near is not the same as in. Put your faith in Christ. Break down the wall of hostility. All right, one more objection, I guess. People could say, Josh, all this sounds good. Sounds like you're saying the Lord is very welcoming, but I've been to a lot of churches and they're not very welcoming. I don't think Christians are very gracious. Let me just a couple quick thoughts. First, yeah, that sadly is true sometimes. Christians are not as welcoming as they ought to be. But make sure you test Jesus himself. And if you test Jesus himself, who preached to those who were far off and those who were near, what group in this world do you know that is more welcoming than Jesus? I think you'll find that Tim Keller is right when he said Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivism there is. See, the reality is Christianity means you get in on the base of someone else's merit. You are saved on the basis of someone else's grace. And you can be restored rather than canceled or exiled even after grievous failure. I don't know anyone as gracious as Christ 
Alexander Solitsyn. You may know of him. He's a Nobel Peace Prize winner. He spent a lot of his career writing about Russian Sovietism and writing against it, and he was put in the gulag. And that's where he did most of his writing. And when he finished, they thought when he won the Nobel Peace Prize, he would write about how bad all these people are, and the only way to get rid of them is to somehow rise among them. But instead, he wrote this. If it were only so simple... If only there were evil people somewhere else insidiously committing evil deeds and all we had to do was separate them from the rest of us. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy half of his own heart? What Alexander is putting on is what this text is telling us. The reason peace only comes through the cross is because only the cross outs all of us as the problem. And Christ only as the solution. So number one was remember. Number two was recognize. But now number three, rejoice. And now verses 19 through 22. Remember what you were apart from God. Rejoice of what you can be in Christ. But now rejoice of what you have in Christ church. Now I'm a pastor and pastors are often accused of sneaking the church in when it's not in the Bible. <laughs> so let me show you from chapter 1 first that what I'm talking about is not what I think. It's what the Bible says, okay? Chapter 1, verse 22. Go back to chapter 1 for just a second. Verse 22. He put all things under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the, you see the word? Church, which is his body. Now go back to chapter 2, please, so that you see that these descriptions are about the church and it's not a pastor forcing it in there, okay? All right, chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Did, did you see what's going on there? The Father is the architect. Christ is the cornerstone. The Spirit is the builder. And Christian, we are the building. It's an amazing thing. No longer outsiders, but now, verse 19, fellows of God's household. No longer silos, sandcastles, but built to God's temple, verse 20 and 21. No longer self-made, but verse 22, built by God. I know our churches don't always live up to what God has to say, but when you hear the word church, whatever connotations come to mind to you, let the Bible give you a better vision of what it can be. This is what God intends to do. But look in verse 22. It says, being built. And yes, it will take time. I've only been in Raleigh for a handful of years. And it seems like every time I go down a street that I haven't been on for six months, there's a new building there that wasn't even there before. But in Paul's day, if you started working on the temple, you would definitely die before it was finished. It would take about 100 years to build. So we lose a little bit of the metaphor. We're used to buildings going up in minutes. They knew that if they got a contract for a building, they're not going to see it finished. And that's how it works with the church. God's building something. We'll see the completion in glory. Right now we see the process. 
Can I just give you a couple pastoral words about the process? The process means that God desires all of us to be built together. Christian, I read a Barna, I don't know how much stock you put in these Barna surveys, but the Barna question was this. The question was, do you need to go to a church to be a Christian? And 91% of the people who answered said no. I know that you don't need the church to go to heaven. The thief on the cross didn't need the church to go to heaven. But the church is the normal place where God does build his people over a lifetime. So Christian, how is your involvement in God's building? Are you part of it? Let me give you a couple suggestions. Take a directory and put it in your Bible. Pray through names while you read the Bible. Most of us go to lunch somewhere on Sunday. Go with someone you've never gone with. Invite someone who you wouldn't have natural affinity with. Let the Spirit bring supernatural affinity. Spend time with each other. Care about each other's walk with the Lord. Let God build us together. As a Baptist pastor, most of my life I've been able to pray in the morning based on the pew you sit in. Surprise me one Sunday and sit somewhere else. It's good for us to get to know each other. Let God build what he's building. But let me give you three final applications today. Number one, and this is the most important for many of you today. For the first time in your life, come to Jesus. Let God break the wall of hostility in your heart down. Stop coming up with all the reasons it doesn't make sense, or all the reasons you're not ready, or all the things that you don't like, and and consider that God is loving you and pursuing you and calling you to himself. Come to Jesus and have peace with him. Receive him through the blood of the cross. Number two, love Jesus' church. D.A. Carson and Doug Moo write this, Just as there's an importance in Christ's saving work that we cannot fathom, so there's an importance in the community of the church that we cannot fully comprehend. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his excellent book, Life Together, writes, He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. But the church intends to be a community where sinners find grace together. But third, final application today. It's the word that began verse 11 and verse 12. Remember the cross. Remembering is an act of worship. It takes effort to remember. It's easy to drift into what I'm struggling with, into what I'm feeling, into what's on my mind naturally. It goes against the current to remember God's grace. Remember God. Remember Jesus. Remember the cross. Remember what you were. Remember what God gave you. And as Jesus said at the Lord's table, remember me. Let me close this in prayer this morning. God, there was a time that we had no hope, but now in Christ Jesus, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There might be a few people here this morning, it's time for them to put the wall of hostility down. Let God break the wall and like Rahab, just say, Lord, help me, remember me, save me. And you will. Jesus came to bring peace. 
Lord, some of us think that there is no peace in Christianity. Jesus said in John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. There is a peace that comes through the cross that you cannot get anywhere else. Lord, it would be so sad if we tried to create and manufacture harmony that won't last anyway. When you're holding out peace that requires humility. Humble us. We all need the cross. We all need Jesus. But in Jesus, we're all together. We share something forever. May this church be known for its peace. May someone visit this church and say, man, I expected to write about hostility, but I found peace. Bring people to Christ through that. But maybe someone in their own home right now it seems hopeless. Remind them, but God. And work the peace of Christ. In his name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.